0: So now we're ready to move on uh, into the tribulation, right, the seven years. Um, So we've gone from the pre-Old Testament to the Old Testament to the cross, to the uh, resurrection ascension, to the church age, to the rapture of the church, presuming the pre-trib rapture, and we're now uh, entering into the the seven years of tribulation. Um, And one of the things um, that is uh, important to point out is you might assume that there would be no believers living during the tribulation if the pre-trib view is correct, right? Boom, the church is gone. So all who are left are non-believers. But this turns out to actually not be the case. The scripture shows that a lot of people actually come to faith. Who knows? Maybe if the pre-trib rapture is true, maybe just the, oh, I can't believe they're gone. And I know what happened for some people who know the word, but chose not to respond to the word. Um, but uh, let's quickly review what happens in, in Revelation, right? The seven-year tribulation is between the sixth chapter and the 19th chapter. And what we see starting in the sixth chapter is the Antichrist appears with a, with a false peace treaty, a, f- a false peace, a bow but no arrow, right? A weapon but no arrows. So he really is coming to conquer, but he doesn't show it at first, right? That's what starts it. And the, uh, chapter six is about the seal judgments, um, there are seven of them, and six of the seven happen in verse uh, in chapter six. And then there's this interlude that is absolutely fascinating in um, uh, before the final, the seventh seal judgment in chapter seven. So look with me at chapter seven, verse two. Here we are, well into the beginning of the tribulation. Right, uh, chapter seven, verse two. And I saw another angel, according. To the rising of the sun, having a seal of the living God, and cried out with a loud voice. Four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. So this is going to be the horrible seventh seal that comes in the tribulation uh, when it is opened in chapter eight. But this is this interlude right before it. And notice what this angel says in verse three: is saying, "Do not harm the earth, or the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the bond servants." of our God on their forehead. Look at verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And now the text gets really specific. Anyone who has said, oh, well, this is the new Israel, this is the church, uh, that just doesn't pass muster because um, the text now specifically names all 12 tribes of Israel, right? Right? And there will be exactly twelve thousand people sealed by God from each tribe. So let's look what happens. There's the in verse five through verse eight. You see the twelve, literally the twelve tribes named. And look what happens then in the next paragraph, verse nine. After these things, verse nine. After these things, I looked and behold the great multitude which which no one could count from every nation. So notice. There's 144,000 Jewish people sealed, and now look what else he sees, this angel. And looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation. This is different. This is the Gentiles, right? Uh, And all the tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches where they're where, where in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Look at verse, skip down to verse 13 with me. Verse 13. And one of the elders answered saying to me, These who are, are clothed in white robes, who are they? And from where have they come? And notice this, very interesting. And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said, Tell me, are these are the ones who come out of great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white with blood the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. So notice there are several important at- attributes of the tribulation. And again, we're presuming the pre-trib view. So if the pre-tribbers are right, the church was gone. But now you see these Jewish believers, 144,000, and myriads upon myriads of Gentile believers who, if the church is gone, have clearly come to Christ, even with the church gone in the midst of the tribulation. So number one, the church is gone, but many still people are still saved during the tribulation. Number two, these include 144,000 from Israel who are protected from harm by being sealed, right? And then number three, There are multitudes of others who get saved from every nation. So these have been termed tribulation saints. In other words, if the pre-tribbers are right, they missed it. They missed Christ coming for for his bride. And now they are believing Jewish and non-Jewish believers. And so let's unpack now some facts about the tribulation. This next section, six biblical tribulation facts. Um, so the believers will do believers and unbelievers as we have through all of the ages. Uh, here are the tribulation saints. Tribulation factor number one, fact number one. Here's your blanks. Many of the believers who refuse to worship the beast will lose their lives during the tribulation. We will also, we'll obviously spend way more time on this later when we're uh, going through the book of Revelation. When you look at the the mark of the beast, uh, economic plan and worship plan, where uh, they are beheaded uh, for not worshiping the beast. Uh, trib fact number two, here's your blanks. The believers who survive all the way through the tribulation will enter the millennium alive. So think about that. If the church has already been taken by Christ, these people have now come to Christ during the tribulation, but if they don't get killed for not taking the mark, right? If they're successfully hide until Christ comes and wins the battle of Armageddon, and starts his millennial reign, these believers live into the millennium. Very, very interesting. And this is actually explicitly taught in Zechariah, um, the Minor prophet. So the easiest way to find Zechariah is turn to Mar- Matthew, the first gospel, and uh, just turn two very, very small books to the left uh, of, uh, of Matthew, uh, and uh, Zechariah uh, followed by Malachi. So just go to Zechariah, the last chapter, of Zechariah. Zechariah was almost long enough, was almost the sixth major prophet, but ended up the longest of the minor prophets. Um, and uh, notice this, verse 1, this is clearly a second coming passage, even though Zechariah would have understood very little about it, obviously. So number one, behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil will take, be taken from you, and it will be divided among you. That's obviously, he's talking to Israel. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Got that? All the nations against Jerusalem to battle. This is a preparation for Armageddon, clearly. And the city will be captured and the houses plundered, the women ravished, half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. So here's this. Great second coming of Christ. And look what's going to happen on that day where he specifically comes to. And in that day, his feet, his Jesus' feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west to a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north. The other half will move south. Verse 5, and you will flee. You... (laughs) right, will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the great earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Notice, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Notice, Jesus returns, wins the battle of Armageddon, but now look at verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. So notice the timing. He comes and destroys the armies that have uh, been set against, uh, uh, against Jerusalem at Armageddon. And now he will be king over the, all the earth. So now he becomes, so Zechariah is clearly pre-millennial. Christ comes at his second coming. And now he reigns over all the earth. In the, that day of the Lord, there will be one and his name is will be the only one. And look at now at verse 16 with me. Then, the next paragraph, then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king. Think about that. So notice, those who joined the armies and fought against Christ with the beast, the Antichrist, those who joined in trying to destroy Christ And His holy ones his armies who came at the battle of Armageddon But those who stayed and refused to be a part of that they aren't at Armageddon And so there's all of these people who are still alive out there and notice what happens Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king the the millennial reign has begun from year to year to worship the king the Lord of hosts and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So you see this amazing millennium where now the fulfillment of all the festivals uh, occur uh, each year. And it's clear that the annual feasts continue all through uh, Christ's reign. So, uh, trib fact number three. Ready? After the tribulation, those who were martyred for refusing to take the mark of the beast will be resurrected at the beginning of... Of the Millennium I'll do this on the timeline in just a minute for those who prefer to see visual graphics uh, to get a real feel for where we are but I think we've come to the end of the tribulation we've started the Millennium and now there's an amazing resurrection so turn with me to Revelation chapter 20 right two chapters from the end of the Bible Revelation chapter 20 and look with me at verse 1 and I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. In 19, what just happened? What just happened was Christ returns and wins the battle of Armageddon and wipes out the Antichrist and the false prophet and has thrown them into the abyss. So notice what happens after Christ's coming now starts the millennium. Verse, uh, look at verse 1 again. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. Verse 2 and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and look at this, and bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss, right? So Christ has returned. Satan has been bound, right? The Antichrist and the false prophet are not Satan. They were humans that did Satan's bidding. They've already been cast, uh, cast out. Uh, Now Satan is actually bound, but he's not destroyed yet. He's actually put into the abyss for a thousand years, right? That's that's what's happening. And now look what happens in verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, ready? Beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So, right, pre-trib fact number three, excuse me, trib fact number three we're working on now. The martyred saints who wouldn't take the mark, who got beheaded, are now resurrected at the beginning of millennium, and they reign with Christ for that thousand years. So look what we've seen here has happened now. We came to the end of the church age. We're using the pre-trib rapture and notice what happens. There's a resurrection here of the church, right? The church is resurrected. The peace treaty begins. We've now gone through the seven years of tribulation. During that time, many, 144,000 Jews at least, they are sealed and who knows, maybe evangelists uh, during that time. And millions upon millions from every other nation are saved. Many of them die for refusing to take the mark of the beast, right? And at the second coming, Christ wins the battle. Those who come against him are destroyed. But everyone who lives is still living into the millennium. But specifically, there's another resurrection, which is why I have put these in red, right? The The main resurrections. This resurrection here is a specific resurrection at the end of the tribulation for all who were beheaded for refusing to take the mark of the beast. And they reign with Christ for a thousand years. Okay? M- more on the millennium in just a minute because the, uh, uh, the immediate question then is, is wow, what happens, what happens in the millennium? Um, so first we have to tidy up, unfortunately, the tragedy of the unbelievers during the tribulation, right? What happens to the unbelievers when they die during the tribulation? You're in Revelation, but go back now with me to chapter 6. Remember, this is in the midst of the, uh, the, the seven seal judgments, which are what uh, begin the tribulation. And I think it's the fourth. Uh, I think this is the fourth seal. Look at verse 7 of chapter 6. And when he broke the fourth seal... I heard the voice of the four living creatures saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. That's a difficult word in Greek. It it basically means it looks like the horse is in shock, right? Dying of shock. And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he, he who sat upon it was named Death. So that's the actual name of the person who's sitting on, or the or the demon, or whatever it is. We don't know for sure. But his name is Death. And notice, and Hades was following him. What's Hades? It's all the dead unbelievers from all of history. So Death is on this dying ashen in-shock horse, um, and Hades is following him. Notice, to kill with the sword, and with the famine, and with pestilence, and with wild beasts. Excuse me, let me, let me get that previous phrase. And authority was given to them, Right? to, this, uh, to, to the, all of those who were involved in the seal judgments. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. So here we see one whose name is Death, and the unbelievers from Hades are following him. here. So here's trib fact number four. Here's your blanks. The Hades side of Sheol is still intact, during the tribulation, and many unbelievers die and go there. So the unbelievers who die during the tribulation are going into Hades, just as all of them have gone into the depths of the earth to await final judgment from all of history. So that doesn't change. Unbelievers always go into the depths of the earth, the place of the dead, in Greek called Hades, in Hebrew before the New Testament came along called torments, But always the unbelievers go to, if you will, the holding tank awaiting final judgment. So what about the unbelievers at the end of the seven years, right? At the end of the tribulation, back to chapter 19, this is the second coming of Christ, so that's worth uh, keeping in your mind. The tribulation starts in chapter 6 of Revelation, and the tribulation ends in chapter 19 because this is the great glorious appearing of Jesus Christ at his second coming. So look with me at verse 11 in chapter 19 of Revelation. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Remember, chapter 6 starts with a white horse also, but that's a fake Messiah. It's the Antichrist. Well, this is the real white horse, and look who is on it. Notice, and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And look with me at verse 19. Here he is at Armageddon. And I saw the beast, the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. (laughs) Satan is not smart at this point, is he? The Antichrist is actually going against the exalted Christ with his armies coming from heaven. Verse 20, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet. So these are two humans. The beast has been inhabited by Satan, but the beast is not Satan. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he delivered those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two, the Antichrist and the false prophet, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Verse 21, And the rest were killed. So all of the rest of the unbelievers who joined the armies against Israel, Zechariah 14, remember? All of the nations come with their armies to try to destroy Israel, and then they turn on Christ. So when they died at the return of Christ, the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. So here's trib fact number five. Here's your blanks unbelievers who join the beast in the battle against Christ at the end of the seven years of tribulation, right? They die in the battle of Armageddon at Christ's return. So what happens to these unbelievers? Look again at the beginning of the millennium, right? Look what happens in the very next chapter. Look at verse 4. What's going to happen to these people, these unbelievers? Verse 4, chapter 20, and I saw thrones... And they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. So we're hearing now about the saints in the tribulation because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life, the resurrection of those who wouldn't take the mark, right? And reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Look now, though, verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Okay, so notice there they are in the depths of the earth in Hades having died in unbelief and they are waiting through the millennial reign of Christ till as we will see the final judgment at the end of the millennium. So here's Trib Fact number three. Unbelievers who die during the tribulation descend into Hades, here's your blanks, and do not come to life until the final judgment at the end of the millennium. Okay, so now we're ready to see what happens during the millennium. You ready? So during the millennium, the first question that's obvious is, where did these people come from who populate the millennium? Interesting question, right? I mean, this is not the new creation yet. That happens in chapter 21 of Revelation after the earth burns with a uh, melts with a fervent heat at the end of the millennium. So this is not the new heaven and new earth. So who in the world is this that's populating the millennium? Number one, those who live during the tribulation and refuse to take the mark but aren't killed. Remember from Zechariah 14. We heard about those who came against Christ at Armageddon and he wins the battle and overthrows all of those who came against him. But those who chose not to come and battle against Christ are not killed at Armageddon, right? Armageddon is not a, uh, is not a global death of everyone who's on the earth. Unlike, you know, what Hollywood might show. It's that armies that come around Jerusalem and try to destroy Jesus led by the Antichrist. So all the other people who are living live on into the millennium. The second uh, group that populate the millennium, this is (laughs) mind-blowing, but here it is. The children of those who survived the tribulation who are born during the millennium. Right? So this is amazing. This is not... Time as we know it has not ended. There's a thousand-year reign of Christ in time on this earth. And notice, people living during the millennium have babies, really striking. So the first group, those who live because they didn't go against Christ at the second coming, live right into the millennium. Those who are the children born of those who are populating the millennium. And then one more time in chapter 20, look at verse four again. And I saw the thrones and they sat upon them. Judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus. And what happens to them? They come to life. And look at the very last phrase in verse 4. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So number three, look at this. These are resurrected tribulation saints who were beheaded during the seven years. Here's the blank. The resurrected tribulation saints who were martyred for refusing the mark. So what do we have so far populating the millennium? Those who didn't die because they didn't go against Christ. They weren't a part of the armies that attacked him with Antichrist. The children of those who are born during the millennium. Third, the resurrected saints who wouldn't take the mark during the tribulation. They, of course, now have immortal resurrected bodies. They are no longer mortal, but the first two groups are still mortal. Think about that. And then finally, look at verse 6 in chapter 20. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Hmm. Just amazing stuff. We'll come back to this. Verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who takes part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. More on that later. But they will be priests to God and uh, of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. So notice... The Holy Ones, the Hagioids in Greek, meaning the angels and the church. In the church, we're called Hagioids because Jesus makes us pure when we're filled with his Holy Spirit. So we're called the Holy Ones, the saints, right? So number four, here's your blanks, the church with our resurrected bodies. So think about what this means about the millennium. This will be a completely unique time in history. And here's your blanks. I'm going to read it twice because this is so amazing. There will be mortal people with earthly bodies, the ones who lived through the tribulation but didn't get killed at Armageddon, and their babies that get born, and immortal people with resurrected bodies living on the earth simultaneously. How cool is that? Let me read that again. There will be mortal people with earthly bodies, and immortal people with resurrected bodies, the church, and those resurrected who wouldn't take the mark of the beast, living on the earth simultaneously. Now, I want, to, uh, um, want us to notice, though, what it means to be mortal also changes dramatically during the millennium. And this is so cool. We could spend a lot of time on it, but I won't. But turn with me to Isaiah, chapter 65. Uh, Isaiah is easy, easy to find. Go to the middle. You'll open the middle. It'll be the Psalms. Turn to the right, three or four books, and it's the first of the major prophets. Isaiah is a huge book, so it's hard to miss. Uh, the, the longest, other than the Psalms, the longest uh, book in the Bible. Um, and it is the next to the last chapter. So look at Isaiah chapter 65. This is a classic millennial passage, right? Look at the last verse of this chapter where we see this amazing picture of what life on earth is like during the millennium. You ready? The wolf, verse 25, chapter 65, the wolf and the lamb will graze together. What a picture. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall do no evil or harm in all my mountain, says the Lord. Right? So we're right in the midst of this classic millennial passage. Look a few verses up before in verse 19. Verse 19, I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard in her, Israel, the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. Look how beautiful the millennium is with Christ reigning on the earth. No longer will there be an infant who lives but a few days. Imagine infant mortality being wiped out by the perfect King Jesus reigning over the earth. Astounding, right? No longer will there be an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not live out his days. (laughs) And we're going to see what an old man looks like in the millennium. It's amazing. Look at this. For the youth will die at the age of 100. You got that? (laughs) Not only in the millennium has Christ wiped out infant mortality, but if you die at 100 you're considered dying in your youth. Look at this. For the youth will die at the age of 100. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 shall be thought accursed. Mind-boggling. If you don't make it to 100, you, die, you the poor thing, you died so young. Verse 21. And they shall build houses and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And they shall not build and another inhabit. Right? That history of Israel getting overtaken by all of these, they would build their nation and then they'd have the big empires come in and take their homes and take their land. They shall not plant and yet another eat. Look at this. For as the lifetime of a tree, so think of an oak, can live many centuries. As the lifetime of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. You ready this? The passage teaches a new mortality that's happening in the millennium. now this is not eternal life yet. this is still time as we know it and there are youth that die at a hundred right? Um, there are those who don't live out their days so there are those who die but here's a new mortality here's your blank. Some people will die during the millennium but most will live a very long time. All right so think about it we've made it to the End of the millennium. Okay, we'll look at the timeline quickly and go all the way back through so everybody's uh, tracking together. But let's finish the end of the millennium, the battle of Gog and Magog. So at the, at the end of the millennium, despite living in a nearly perfect world with a perfect King Jesus reigning over the whole earth, there will still be another great rebellion among all of the nations. So go with me back to the last book in the Bible. The second to the last book. Uh, excuse me, third to the last uh, chapter, chapter 20, Revelation chapter 20. And look at this. This is absolutely remarkable. Remember, when we left Satan last, he had been bound by the angel and had been thrown into the abyss for a thousand years, right? Look what happens now, verse 7 of chapter 20 of Revelation. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. So what happened? Seven years of tribulation, at the end Christ comes at his second coming, wins the battle of Armageddon, destroys Antichrist and the false prophet who are humans, and throws them into the lake of fire. Satan's not destroyed and thrown into the lake of fire at that point. Satan then is, uh, enters into the millennium, but during the millennium he's thrown into the abyss and he's bound with the chain from the great angel, right? Right? And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Look at Ezekiel 38, 39, if you want to see this battle of Gog and Magog. It's a very impressive battle, right? Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Think of verse 8. Satan's released... And now the nations are deceived again, despite Christ reigning over this perfect earth, right? Verse 9, And they came up on the broad plain. So this is basically a redo of Armageddon, but it's called the Battle of Gog and Magog. On the broad plain of the earth, and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. This is how the millennium is ending On the earth, by the way, look how sin makes you stupid. These are mortal humans coming against the resurrected saints who now have immortal bodies and cannot be killed because there is no second death for those who are in Christ. A completely futile battle, not even Christ would have to have led that battle because not one single saint who has been resurrected could be killed. It's astounding how foolish they become. So notice this, at the end of the millennium, right, despite a perfect king and a perfect world, here's your blanks, a host of people join Satan's rebellion and will die in another battle against Christ. Okay, so now we get to the judgments at the end, and there's not just one, there's actually two. Um, After Christ wins the battle of Gog and Magog, there are still a bunch of people alive, right? So at the end of the millennium, there will be many people who did follow Christ and didn't join the battle against Gog, of Gog and Magog against Christ and against his holy ones, right? There will be a bunch of people living uh, in the millennium who didn't join the rebellion. It says all the nations are deceived, but every, not every person is deceived, okay? So uh, notice what, what's going to happen. Um, some believers are deceived by Satan, but many are not, and they are actually still alive. Remarkable. So there will be believers and unbelievers at the end of the millennium who didn't join the battle of of Gog and Magog, who are both alive. So what happens to these believers and unbelievers at the end of the millennium? Well, turn with me to... uh, Jesus is wonderful at answering this question, of course. Uh, Chapter... Twenty-five of Matthew the second chapter of the famous Olivet Discourse so Matthew the first gospel chapter 25 uh, and uh, both of these chapters 24 and 25 taken together are called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus was preaching on the Mount of Olives and um, notice what happens in verse 31 when Jesus now talks about the sheep and goats judgment Notice, by the way, this is the only judgment where both unbelievers and believers stand before the judge at the same time, interestingly enough. Chapter 25, okay? And so we're going to look at group one. There's two people standing before the Lamb. Group one, verse uh, 31 of Matthew 25, the start of the paragraph. Look at this. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne so remember that's not his heavenly throne he's come down to earth and he is set on his millennial throne okay so notice in chapter 24 jesus has returned at his second coming now in 25 we're getting to see what happens after he has sat on his earthly on the throne of david on the earth during the millennium and look what now happens right Verse 32, and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Verse 33, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Verse 34, then the king, notice the constant use of the term king here. Why most of the time Jesus is either the Lamb, right, in the Gospels, or the Son of Man. Why is it now the King? Because this is Jesus, the millennial King, reigning for a thousand years on the throne of David on the earth. Okay? Then the King, verse 34, will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So here's group one being judged at the end of the millennium, right? They are the faithful. They are the sheep, notice, and here's the blank. They inherit the eternal kingdom. Very explicit from Jesus. Now let's look what happens to group two. The rebellious, the non-believers, those who refused, even though they got to see Jesus be the consummate, perfect king of the world. Where things are so good that infant mortality is wiped out. things are so good that if you die when one you're year, 100 years, people say, "Oh, poor, the poor guy he died in his youth." reigning over this hunger, in- no pain, the amazing time during this millennium, and notice the rebellious verse 41, verse 41 of Matthew 25. Then he will also say to those on his left, "Depart from me, accursed ones." Into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Look at verse 46, the last verse in the chapter. And these will go away into eternal punishment. But, now referring back to the sheep, but the righteous into eternal life. So group two, the rebellious, here's your blank. They experience eternal fire, eternal punishment. All right, now... All of the unbelievers from all of history are brought to the final judgment, okay? The final judgment. We'll do this on the timeline in just a minute, but back to Matthew, excuse me, back to Revelation chapter 20. I guess I should have told you to keep your finger there, but it's easy to find. It's only uh, three chapters from the end of the Bible. Uh, Look with me now at verse 11, at the end of the millennium. This is the final unbeliever's judgment of all unbelievers from all of history who now stand before the great king. Verse 11, it's a new paragraph there. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. So notice, everyone who stands before the great white throne Is fleeing. Okay? They are trying to get away. There are no believers, praise God, because of His grace at the great white throne judgment. Notice verse 12. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds remember if your name's not in the book of life that's the judgment seat of christ right where the crowns are given out but the question is not whether you'll have eternal life the question isn't are you safe safely home in christ in heaven the question there is what did you do with the grace and the faith and your gifting and your time what did you do as a believer okay this is very different than that this is he opens the book of life And if the name's not there, then he opens a person's book of deeds and he lists all of the ways in which the dead unbelievers were self serving and lived in pride and would not let God be God and wanted God to be themselves. They wanted to be God themselves. Look at this, verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. So think about that. There's the dead bodies of those who were, uh, who were buried at sea, or fell overboard and died, whatever, who were unbelievers. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. Hades is now full of people from all of the ages who died in unbelief and in rebellion, right? And they were judged, every one of them, notice, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire This is the second death, the lake of fire. And look at the last verse. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this passage describes the final judgment. And here's your blanks. The great white throne judgment is also called the second death. Right? Notice what happens. This is the second death because here are your blanks since the dead unbelievers who were raised from their physical death now face eternal spiritual death. Right? They died once when they stopped breathing, but this is actually the real death that matters. It's the second death, it's the eternal death that occurs separated from God. So finally at this point, every human from all of history is accounted for, right? Everyone either lives in eternal relationship with God or has chosen eternal separation from God. We will spend time on heaven and spend time on hell sometime in the future in its own mini-series because there's so much about it and it is so misunderstood. Um, And so this is when time as we know it is no more. We don't have time tonight to go into it, but guess what happens now? You move into the new heaven and the new earth. It's the new universe, the new physics. Everything now, the old earth is destroyed by fire. 2 Peter chapter 3, all these incredible pictures of the earth melting with a fervent heat. And the new heaven and new earth comes, that's eternity. We'll talk about eternity at a later time. But I just want to make sure that we together, so get your, um, uh, get the thing that looks like this. Hopefully you've got it. And sorry it's, um, (laughs) sorry it's not uh, better done. But uh, from from Adam until Christ, everyone went into the depths of the earth. Those who believed what had been revealed went to Abraham's bosom and were comforted. Those who disbelieved went into torments and weren't. At the resurrection, Jesus goes, descends three days, preaches, tells the truth in Hades. And those who believed before now go with him to paradise, captured, captive, held captive as he goes at the ascension to be at the right hand of the Father and live in heaven. Those who would not, who reject Jesus, even when they hear Jesus preaching in Hades, they stay in Hades all through here. And notice, this is the the unbelievers, what happens to them is very simple all through here. Everyone who dies at any one of these ages goes into the depths of the earth, into torments slash Hades, the bad side of Sheol and they wait for the very final judgment that we just heard, the great white throne judgment where all of the unbelievers who don't have their name written in the book of life, all are thrown into the eternal fire. The believers, during the church age, as soon as we stop breathing, our spirit goes to be with him. What happened if the pre-tribbers are right? Resurrection of the old bodies get pulled together more on that in the application i'll have to hurry on the application tonight um resurrection and then the tribulation during the tribulation if the church is gone there's still many 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 believers jewish and non-jewish believers right and if they die they are resurrected at the end of the tribulation the beginning of the millennium for not taking the mark of the beast the unbelievers dying during this time all still going to hades the second coming happens. The millennium is populated by four different types of people. Two of them are mortal. Two of them are not uh, mortal or are, are immortal, right? And during all this time, those who die in unbelief go into Hades. Those who die in belief, we don't have any explicit sense, but probably, but we know will be resurrected at the end. And then at the end comes the battle of Gog and Magog, a redo Armageddon, if you will. The, Christ wins that battle. And then you have the final judgment and go into eternity. Everyone whose name uh, has their name written in the Lamb's Book of Life, eternal life, and those who do not, eternal separation from God. Um, So application. Let's, uh, let's, Let's do application. Number one, don't worry about believers' dead bodies because the Creator who made the first body from dust... Will resurrect everybody from dust. Not everybody, every body from dust. I get asked all the time when I'm t- teaching on stuff like this. All the time, I get asked about, you know, what about well, what about cremation and all that kind of thing. So, so, so our two applications tonight come from a question that was asked by one of the thersologists uh, during the thing. And by the way, if you're on now and you have any questions at all, put a, please put them in the chat box because then we'll. Uh, I'll incorporate them often, just like I've done in the last two sessions, I'll incorporate your questions uh, into future teaching. Um, but this one comes directly. Here's the question. During the church age, if the spirits of dead believers go to be with Christ, what happens to their bodies? And what happens if they're cremated? Or are buried at sea, where they presumably get devoured by fish, right? It's the, the idea is, holy cow, they're there's no body left or they're eaten by worms. If it, it, Everyone is. Everyone deteriorates. You end up with, with basically no body. Um, and uh, the rapture, rapture passages tell us really well that when Jesus comes from his church, those who are alive and remain won't precede those who have fallen asleep. And what happens to those who have died? Their bodies will be changed into a resurrection body. How can God make a body from dust? easy, just the way he did Adam, right? Making, in fact, remember, you'll remember in the gospels, Jesus said, hey, God can raise sons of Abraham up from these stones. No big deal. He can make dust. So from the deteriorated, maybe even devoured or cremated body, he will make a perfect resurrection body that joins the spirit which has already been in heaven with him in paradise because you died in belief, so you went to be with Jesus immediately, those two will be perfectly joined together. So a few points. Heaven is not a floaty cloud place where disembodied spirits play harps, right? (laughs) We will have real bodies, perfect, just like Adam and Eve, and just like Christ after the resurrection, Third, Jesus' resurrection body seemed to be able to go through walls and he ate fish to make sure everyone knew that the resurrection was a physical resurrection, not just a spiritual one. And four, the resurrection body is clearly something completely new, completely perfect, completely physical, and completely spiritual. It will be fully integrated, eternal human being that God has always intended us to be. Perfect body. Immortal, perfect spirit, sinless, bought by the blood of the Lamb, made perfectly pure, living forever, eternally. Application number two. This blows my mind. There will only be one imperfect human in heaven. Let me say that again. There will only be one imperfect human in heaven. So there's a biblical truth about the resurrection of the dead that really boggles my mind. It's a truth that I'm not sure that I've ever heard anyone else teach about. But the question that we're working on now about the resurrection of the bodies brings it into focus, right? It has powerful implications about the very nature of God. So first, let's be reminded of what the Apostle Paul taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I think I gave you the reference there, write it in, the resurrected believer, we will have an immortal resurrected body that is absolutely without any imperfection. No imperfection at all. Absolutely perfect resurrection bodies. And now I'd like us to understand what happened with the eternal son of God when he came to earth. Let's start with the doctrine of the Incarnation. You ready? Here's your blanks. Since His conception by the Holy Spirit, Christ is both fully God and fully human. Right? This is important. Jesus is not half and half. (laughs) He's all God and all man. And it's fundamental to Christian belief that His resurrection and His return to the right hand of Father of the Father, listen. It did not remove His humanity. Jesus didn't turn back into being non-human when He went to the Father. He is still fully God and fully human, the perfect man God. Right? He remains. Actually, I said that wrong. The theologians always say the perfect God dash man. So here's the key concept. Ready? He remains the firstborn from the dead. Here's the key concept. Jesus is both the perfect divine nature and the perfect human nature fully integrated in one person. Classic biblical theology. Jesus is both perfect divine nature and the perfect human nature fully integrated in one person. Right? So we're going to save, you've got the reference there, we're going to save the time of reading John 20 because our time has come to an end. But I want us to turn to, to think about the well-known passage and think about its staggering implications. But these implications are not at all obvious. Think about it, the appearances of Jesus to the disciples at his resurrection. He comes to the disciples, Thomas isn't there, right? They all believe, and then Thomas Shows up later and Jesus shows up eight days later because Thomas at the first one has said, if I do not put my hands in his hands and in his side, I will not believe. Eight days later, all of a sudden, boom, he's in the room. So that's that spirit part of the physical body. We know he's also truly physical because he also ate fish, right? And spirits don't eat breakfast, right? So you've got this amazing God, man, perfect resurrected body, almost perfect. Think about this. He now says, look at my hands and my side and put your hands into my side and feel my scars. Think about this. From the perspective of what we've been talking about, I want us to think about this. When we are in heaven someday, enjoying eternal life, with perfect bodies, with a complete absence of imperfection, disease, pain, injury, or suffering, when we have imperishable, immortal, flawless bodies, there will be something amiss in heaven. Something will be wrong in heaven. Something will be marred, imperfect, not right. Something will be tainted in heaven. But think what it is. It'll be the resurrected Son of God who will still have the scars. That was the resurrection body that Jesus showed to Thomas. You see, Jesus will be the only human with an imperfect resurrected body. And throughout eternity, while we rejoice and enjoy our perfect bodies, he'll live with that imperfection. He'll live with the results of our sin. He'll live with the costly consequences of our atonement. He'll stand before the myriads upon myriads of angels and the millions upon millions of the redeemed of our fallen race. And he alone will be imperfect. Listen, church. The perfect son of God will have an imperfect body. So we must not miss this. This can't just be theology. We must face this question and be brutally honest with ourselves. How costly is our sin? Jesus will bear the scars of our sin forever. Our sin has been forgotten by the Father. It is as far as the east is from the west, but it's not true for Jesus. Jesus still bears the scars today of all of my sin, and in eternity, his resurrected body will still bear the scars of our sin. How awesome is his grace. With the limitless power of his precious blood, the Savior purchased our perfect, immortal, imperishable, unblemished bodies. And notice, we will receive the benefits of his costly grace forever and ever. Hallelujah. Is there any greater story? Is there any greater truth? And is there any greater reason for us to surrender our lives completely to our great Savior? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Oh God, forgive me that I take sin so lightly. When it costs you in eternity, a marred body. But you, the perfect Savior, wanted to do that for us. Thank you, Lord. You are a great Savior. Amen.